And we wrote up this simple concept note. It was a, we had one to two pagers. And I started, I would go to New York a lot for UN negotiations. I would wander the hallways with my little piece of paper, talking to people and trying to convince them of why this was a really good idea. Almost acting like an NGO, even though I was a government delegate. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, we're going to learn about the creation of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, we delve into the imperative need for global goals in sustainable development, exploring the historical context and current progress of goals. We examine the Millennium Development Goals, which were adopted back in 2002. We look at their creation, minimalist fashion, and evaluate their success. The discussion spans the expectations for developed countries and the role of developing nations in global development goals. Paula Caballero, drawing from her experience in the Colombian government, walks us through the evolution from Millennium Development Goals to the groundbreaking idea of the Sustainable Development Goals. We explore the challenges and key actors involved in launching the SDGs, addressing the fundamental disconnect between environmental concerns and socioeconomic responses. We learn about the United Nations negotiation process as well as the form of informal diplomacy Paula used to help launch the SDGs. Join us for a conversation on the importance of global goals and sustainable development on this episode of The Green Hour. In 2015, the United Nations adopted the Sustainable Development Goals a universal call to action aiming to eradicate poverty, safeguard the planet, and ensure global peace and prosperity by 2030. Comprising 17 integrated goals, the SDGs recognize the interdependence of various actions, emphasizing the importance of balancing social, economic, and environmental sustainability. Countries committed to prioritizing progress for the most marginalized, with objectives to end poverty, hunger, AIDS, and gender discrimination. The goals include ending hunger, promoting good health, ensuring quality education, fostering gender equality, providing clean water and sanitation, advancing affordable and clean energy, promoting decent work and economic growth, encouraging industry innovation and infrastructure, reducing inequality, building sustainable cities and communities, advocating for responsible consumption and production, addressing climate action, preserving life below water and on land, promoting peace, justice, and strong institutions, and fostering partnerships for the goals. On this episode of The Green Hour, we're joined by Paula Caballero, the visionary behind the Sustainable Development Goals concept. While serving as the Director of Economic, Social, and Environmental Affairs for Colombia in 2011, Paula conceived the idea for a comprehensive set of global development goals 
She eventually took this goal and led a bold initiative, some might say rogue operation, within the United Nations to bring this vision to life. This idea and vision are what we know today as the Sustainable Development Goals. Paula was recognized for her groundbreaking work, having received the German Sustainability Award in 2019 and the Zayed International Prize for the Environment in 2014. Prior to her role in the Colombian government, Paula worked for the United Nations Development Program and post-government service she contributed to various organizations, including the World Bank, the World Resource Institute, Rare, and currently the Nature Conservancy. Paula is also the author of the book, Redefining Development, The Extraordinary Genesis of the Sustainable Development Goals, a book where she walks you through the process of how she took this idea for the Sustainable Development Goals and made it a reality. Ensuring the longevity of our resources and time on Earth requires a united and collaborative effort. While global goals for sustainable development provide a crucial framework, their impact remains hollow without collective action. It is imperative for humanity to join forces, transcending borders and individual interests to actively contribute to the realization of these goals. Only through a shared commitment and collaborative initiatives can we turn the promise of sustainable development into meaningful and lasting change for the benefit of present and future generations. Welcome back to the Green Hour. We are joined by Paula Caballero today um, to talk about sustainable development and talk about you know how she aided in creating the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. So, Paula, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a really a privilege and a joy to join the Green Hour. So, Paula, you've done some remarkable things in your career, um, and I think we could have a whole other interview just to talk about what the work that you're doing for the Nature Conservancy right now. But hopefully, maybe in the future, we can have a conversation on that work. Um, but really, this interview, I want to talk about your time with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Colombia and really the work that you did from 2011 on. Before we get into that, I just, I just want to say, um, I, I don't know if I've told you this, but I, I reached out to you in New York um, at, at Climate Week, the Concordia Annual Summit. Um, and, and I wanted to include this in there because it's kind of a weird coincidence. Basically, you know, I, I was doing interviews. I was a media partner at the Concordia Annual Summit. And every day, Concordia's team would give us a list, the media partners, of all the guests that were going to be at the summit. And you're talking thousands of names. And, you know, after every day, I'd, I'd go back to the apartment, to the Airbnb that we we're staying in, and I would just look through the list and audit and see, like, who, who would I want to interview? Who should I contact? And then create interview structures off of that. So from looking through that list, that's how I found your name. And when I started doing research, I was like, wow, I... I cannot wait. And, and I hope that I can do an interview with, with Paula. And here we are today, um, a couple months later. So um, again, from the, from the bottom of my heart, just thank you so much for, for joining us because this, this conversation is very important. And as we were talking about before, this conversation is, is one that a lot of people don't, don't understand. It's kind of hard to wrap their, their head around, especially when you're talking about the United Nations. So, so again, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Preston. It's, it's a real joy. And I think it's a the moment where we are in sort of planetary history and all the things that are happening around the world, this is a really optimistic and good conversation to have because the SDGs are about how we can make a difference. So, so the first segment I want to talk about and kind of set the stage here, um, Paula, is 
you know, when we're talking about the world, um, not just for me, not just in the U.S., we're, we're talking about the world in general, you know, the need for global goals for sustainable development. You know, we hear about, you know, global accords like the Paris Agreement, like the SDGs, you know, but why are they needed? Well, look, they're needed for a lot of reasons. The first one is that we do live in a global world, and that sounds sort of self-evident, but let me unpack that a little bit. We have trade flows, we import and we export commodities, things like beef or soy, but also we have trade flows that have to do with electronics and cars and things that we use, things like fossil fuels, things like minerals that we need to keep our economies going. So there's so many flows between countries um, around goods. There's information flows. There's flows of people um, to which there's legal and illegal migration and all, all of that. But there's also the need sometimes that countries will have to bring in skill sets or to bring in different competencies like getting more nurses to come or more doctors. Um, so there's a whole lot of areas in which, as you start to, if you really sit there and think about it, we are such a globalized world. And so the only way we can think that we can set up walls and lock ourselves off, but we actually can't because everything is very integrated. If you think about, for example, our finance systems, they're integrated. The internet, cyberspace is integrated. And we've seen time and again that what can happen in one place can affect other places. We've had different financial stocks, for example, that speak to that how, how interrelated the world is. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that we inhabit the same planet. So for example, climate change, which is now affecting every single corner of the planet, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, developed or developing, everybody's feeling it, right? The floods and the droughts, et cetera. The only way that we can deal with those kinds of issues is if we have agreements around the world of how we're going to do it. A third reason that is really powerful is that some of the crises or the challenges that we're facing are incredibly complex, like climate change. No single government, no single actor or stakeholder can possibly solve that. It needs collaboration and it needs cooperation. And if everybody has sort of their own expectation and own ideas about what they can or cannot do or what they want or don't want to do, well, it becomes really hard to get the kind of ambitious pathways and track record and movement to address these challenges. So it's hugely helpful if everybody can agree on what are the priorities and how are you going to lean in. Mm -hmm. So global goals help us coordinate and lean in. And global goals are also really important because they're a collective call to action. So they actually can inspire. And we saw that. There was something called the Millennium Development Goals that you'll want me probably to talk about more. But this was a, a set of really simple goals that were agreed to at the turn of, of the, the millennium. And what they did was they outlined seven really simple objectives that encompassed really complex things like ending poverty and ending hunger and dealing with transmissible diseases like malaria and HIV. And it said goals. It said, we're going to do this, this, and this around these issues. And it was, it had an incredibly invigorating effect because it helped governments say, okay, we're going to allocate resources and support to this. 
whether it was developed countries providing support to developing countries or developing countries agreeing to do things. It also enabled private sector and philanthropists to lean in. So, for example, there was a big push around something called Gavi, which is the Global Alliance for Vaccination, and that helped get thousands or millions of of children and others vaccinated against preventable diseases. And that was supported by the Gates Foundation and a whole canopy of, or a whole panoply of of actors that came together and said, that's really important. We're going to work together. So global goals enable us to harness extraordinary amounts of willpower and intent and resources and commitments to deliver on something that is about the collective good. Because if you address these crises, no one person or one country will benefit, but there's a collective benefit. So those are all the reasons why goals are so important. Global goals are so important. Hmm. Yeah, I love that because I feel like, especially I've lived in the U.S. my whole life. So you can almost, it almost seems like you can almost work in silos and you almost only think about, you know, what, what is the U.S. doing? For me, it's like, you know, what are we doing in our country? But if we're thinking globally, I mean, you mentioned climate change. We can't just do stuff here in the U.S. to combat climate change. We have to all come together as a world. Because if just, let's just say the U.S. does everything right, everything correctly for climate change, but nobody else does or, or a couple other countries don't, I mean, it, it's not, we're not going to have solutions that we need. So these global accords, these global, um, I, I guess, goals for sustainable development are needed. So then I, I, I want to talk about, you know, you, you were working for, for the government of, of Colombia. And back in 2011, you had mentioned the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, and you're working in the government and, you know, it's these goals went from 2000 or 2002 to 2015. And um, like you said, there's seven or eight goals that they had. But you're, you're sitting there in 2011 and you're thinking that there might be a better way. There might be better goals that, that can be set um, that we can actually, you know, work towards and achieve. And you had an idea. And you thought of something that could be better. So could you talk about, you know, what that idea was um, in 2011 and, you know, how all of that, you know, came to be? Sure. So look, I think that the Millennium Development Goals, and I'm going to call them MDGs for short, and then we're going to talk about the SDGs, so just so people don't get confused. So M is for Millennium. So the Millennium Development Goals were created at the UN. And they were very um, revolutionary because it was uh, it, it set global targets. And so for all of the reasons that I just said, they were really good. They become like a lighthouse around which everybody can figure out how to contribute and what to do. And they helped organize a lot of the work of the UN and uh, other development agencies and even the multilateral development banks. And a multilateral development bank is a bank like the World Bank or the Inter-American or the African Development Bank. These are big banks that um, that are um, owned, so to speak, by many governments, multilateral. They, they're owned by many governments, and they have an objective to support primarily governments, the, the public sector, to achieve and to advance different needs that they have, right? So loans for infrastructure, for um, schools, for health, for policy. Um, so everything started to be organized or had a referent around the MDG. So they became very, very powerful. All of the development agenda around the world was structured around the MDGs. And the reason is that they were really simple, you know, 
was just, it was, it was a couple of goals and they had, they were targeting things that everybody agreed was a priority. You have to end poverty. You have to end hunger and things like maternal mortality or infant malnutrition or terrible diseases like HIV or malaria. Everybody could wrap their heads around that. There were targets about how they were going to be halved or, you know, what percentage reduction. And, and it didn't say exactly how, but it said what was going to happen. And they were very powerful. They were great. When I joined government, um, I had been um, working at the UN, actually, at the UN Development Program, and I left UNDP to joined the Colombian government, leading a, uh, a unit in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Colombia. I'm, I'm Colombian by birth and, and upbringing. Um, so it was, I was leading a, a unit that was a directorate for environment, social, and economic affairs. And everybody, you know, I started to think that there was this huge milestone coming up, which was the Rio Plus 20, or the United Nations Conference on Sustainable Development. So I'm going to refer to, it has a long name, so I'm going to call it Rio Plus 20. Let me just pause to unpack and to explain why this conference was important. There was, in 1992, a very huge conference in Brazil called the Earth Summit, and everybody was there. It had over 100 heads of state, and it, was, it really marked a before and an after in all of the development agenda, because that's where the Convention on Climate Change, the one that we're now negotiating and that the Paris Accord and everything came from, that was, that was part of that Earth Summit. Also, the Convention on Biodiversity. Also, the Convention on Land Degradation. So this Earth Summit created a whole um, arena of legal agreements to tackle sustainable development. Countries were inspired. A lot of countries created ministries of the environment as a result of the Earth Summit. So it really marked a before and an after. And it also agreed to something called Agenda 21, which was like a blueprint for what we need to do to have a more sustainable economy, society, and planet. It, was, it wasn't just an environment agenda. So the Earth Summit was huge. Well, where were we? that was 1992. And so here we're talking end of 2010, 2011, so almost 20 years after Rio. And there was going to be, in 2012, another big summit. 20 years after that big Earth Summit. So it had a long name, but everybody started to call it Rio Plus 20. So why was Rio Plus 20 important? I sat there and I thought, this is going to be another huge global gathering. Everybody's going to be there. Importantly, presidents, prime ministers, heads of state are going to be there. Whatever we agree to there, Preston, is going to have global import because it's going to be agreed at the very highest level. So we have to make sure that whatever we put in front of those heads of state has to be commensurate with the power to move a new agenda. And when I looked to see what it was that the global community had agreed that was going to be the agenda for Rio Plus 20, I was baffled. I was like, what? Because there were two items on the agenda, and one had to do with something called green economy. Nobody could agree what it was. Everybody was fighting over the concept. So that's not a good start. And then the other one was, and I won't go into it, but something about a re institutional restructuring within the UN, essentially. So, you know, that's not really going to get anybody's interest. It's not going to mobilize the private sector. It's not going to mobilize civil society. It's not going to get scientists excited. 
Like, what could you do with that? So I said, mm, we have to go back to the drawing board. What can we do that's really at the scale of real plus 20 of that possibility? And I thought, you know, the MDGs have been amazing because what I said at the beginning, they started to create a global conscience of issues that we all had to deal with. It created that collective call to action. It galvanized, got everybody to lean in and say, we're going to work together to solve these targets. And that was awesome. I, I think the MDGs were amazing, but they were insufficient. And here's where the revolution of the SDGs starts. This is where this story that you want me to tell you starts. Because I looked at the SD, MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, and I thought they're amazing, but they're insufficient for at least these reasons. One is that they are very narrow and they're looking at social issues, but they are not looking at issues around economics and social. How can you possibly end poverty if you're not talking about transforming energy systems and making sure that people have access to energy? And access to education. How can you possibly end hunger if ending hunger is not about giving handouts to people? It's about cha changing food systems and making sure that farmers have access to finance. And it's a lot more complicated. And so I said, well, the entities were great, but why don't we work on the basis of that concept and expand it so that it's not this narrow minimalist agenda, but an agenda that can help us really look at all of the levers, all of the catalysts of development and make it sustainable and equitable. Not just sustainable, but equitable. That was one reason, and that was pretty revolutionary. The second reason is because the MDGs were for developing countries only, like half the world. Um, mm -hmm. Developed countries didn't have to do anything except provide some resources, money, technology transfer on a you know sort of voluntary basis to developing countries. But the idea was that developed countries that are all solved out, had no problems at all with anything. And it was developing countries that had the problem and they had to figure, and the way that developing countries are going to address their problems was by emulating the economic model of developed countries. It was a bifurcated world. And so when I started, I was told to talk about the SDGs and this idea that I had, I was told that I was crazy. I was bonkers. I was uh, an even harsher language. It was very vehement. One, because I it was absurd to think that we could create a framework that encompassed the complexity of development. I was like, what are you talking about? You want to talk about agriculture and you want to talk about infrastructure and you want to talk about trade? And you, How can you do that? That's ridiculous. It's too complicated. Then many others were telling me, but why would developed countries need this? We haven't figured, like, what is Belgium or the US or, or the UK going? We have it all figured out. To which I would say, well, there's actually huge pockets of poverty in all your countries. In some parts of the US, there's very high maternal mortality rates, et cetera, et cetera. And as we've seen over the last years, developed countries also are dealing with another host of issues. So, Development isn't like black and white. It, development is like a spectrum and countries are at different parts of it and they might be really strong in one area and have problems with another. And that's good. That's normal. But that's what we had to accept and work with and not have this idea that we could divide the world and have only developing countries do something. Because if we go back to why we need global goals, the conversation 
we had at the very beginning, Preston, remember that one of the reasons we talked about is the fact that there's global issues, global trade flows, global finance flows, global people flows, things like climate change, things like water scarcity, things like all of that requires global collaboration. And the MDGs were blind to that. They didn't see that at all. So what I was proposing was let's build on the MDGs, but have a universal, that's for all countries, not just some countries, where all countries have equal responsibility and that seeks to encompass the complexity of development. And that is important because unless we look at the economic and social dimensions also, you're not going to be able to end things like hunger or and poverty. You have to look at all of the dimensions, the environment, the economic, and the social, all together in a unified way. And so that was the first revolution. Let's not, and the MDGs were due to expire in 2015. They were 15, it was for 15 years. And so the third reason why this was not well received at all was because some people thought I was hijacking the MDG process. It was like, wait, we have four years to go on the MDGs. How dare you propose something else? We have to wait until 2015. And then in 2015, we'll think, we'll see where we are with the MDGs and we'll figure out what to do. And here's the big message, Preston, the big takeaway from this. People think that the SDGs just evolved organically. They didn't. The reason I wrote a book about the process is because it was a huge, huge battle on so many fronts. Because I went against all of that entrenched system that was supporting the MDGs. The banks, the governments, the development agencies were all structured around helping countries deliver only developing countries on the MDGs. And when I came along and suggested the SDGs, I was subverting an entire established system. What they wanted, what the people who were really wedded to the status quo wanted, was to, when we got to 2015, take a look at the MDGs and revamp them. Adjust the target, fix this. But we would have essentially been looking at a very narrow social agenda. Think of everything that's happening right now. Pandemic, climate change, all of the things that are happening right now. And we would be, as a global community, the only shared tool that we would have would be this really, really narrow set of, of goals that ignored all of the drivers of both prosperity and growth, as well as what could inhibit that growth. So the SDGs were happened against all odds, and I can talk more about what that very difficult process was like. But the message is that the SDGs were really and truly a paradigm shift. We changed completely how the world looks at development, how the world understands development, and how the world approaches development with this new bright language of something called the Sustainable Development Goals. Hmm. So what I think is cool, Paula, is, I mean, you talk about the MDGs, how they were just you know, creating these goals and looking at, you know, these developing countries and, and kind of just, you know, taking out the developed countries altogether, saying, oh, the developed countries, you know, you, you're developed, um, you, you can, you're okay. But what I love about the SDGs is you're bringing both together, because like you're saying, I mean, I'm in the US, we have so many issues. I mean, I look, I look at the 17 SDGs, and I'm like, 
I mean, all of these things, I mean, we, we have issues with and we can improve with. So what I think is really powerful, Paula, is, um, you know, back in 2011, the MDGs are, are set to expire in 2015. And you lead this charge as, as a developing country, um, lead this charge to create something better, um, mm-hmm. to create something new. And that's, that's kind of what I want to ask you next is really the role of, of a developing country like Colombia led by two women in leading the charge of, of these SDGs. I mean, you mentioned how you faced a lot of opposition, and I can imagine you did. So, so I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit and just, just kind of unpack, you know, what, what was that opposition? You know, what was the stages of opposition? And how did, you, how did you get all of these people from all over the world in the same boat, rowing in the same direction that, that you ultimately wanted to go in? <laughs> Thanks. That's, that's a really good question. Look, I'll, I'll tackle the first one that is, you know, that it was two women from developing country, from Colombia. And when we started to propose this, it was, I didn't go, so here's the first thing that, that what was, I think, also revolutionary about the process and why it was successful is that we didn't go through formal routes. There was a formal, what, what are called UN resolutions, and they're adopted by something called the General Assembly, where all of the countries that are members of the UN sit and they vote. And all of them had adopted this resolution that said, this is the agenda for Rio Plus 20, these two things that I had mentioned earlier. We could have said, oh, we need another resolution. And then we could have spent years fighting and trying to get another resolution in. We never did that. I wrote up a concept paper of what this idea was about with the support and the active encouragement of my vice minister of Patti Londoño, who is an an amazing woman. And she immediately saw the strength and the power and the potential of the SDGs, which very few other did. And so she gave me her blanket approval, and then she took it to the minister and to the president. They had blanket approval. And you'll see why that was very rare. And that was part of the formula for success was that I had the support of my government behind me because they understood the importance of this. And we wrote up this simple concept note. It was a, we had one to two pages and I started, I would go to New York a lot for UN negotiations. I would wander the hallways with my little piece of paper, talking to people and trying to convince them of why this was a really good idea, almost acting like an NGO, even though I was a government delegate. And I started I would get, literally, I started with two people, and then they would give me advice, and then I would go to this. And We started out, I could count on my one hand, the people who paid attention to me in the first two months, and then in two hands, and then they started to bring people. And then they would bring people, I would sit in something called the Vienna Cafe, which was like a little cafe in between the negotiation rooms, and everybody would walk by there. And I would sit there and grab people, and eventually people started to bring people to me. And I started to get more and more people that had a strong voice or were well-respected to start to understand what I was proposing. And a lot of them in the beginning was like, this is a really stupid idea. And then slowly they would warm up and, oh, maybe you've got something. So this went on for months and months and months. And finally, in May of 2011, I convened the first meeting on the SDGs because I thought, okay, we're ready for this. And I invited Develop and developing countries, like a representative group of countries, to the Colombian, um, we call them mission in New York, but it's like the Colombian embassy to the UN. They're called missions. Um, and I went and I bought some cookies on my way in and I got some coffee 
And we had the first meeting of ever in the history of the world of the SDGs because I wanted to understand what people's concerns were. And it was lukewarm as a mild understatement. It was, you know, people were respectful. They're diplomats. Everybody was very respectful. Um, but it, it still wasn't there. But I started to sense that there was real gravitas because people, especially civil society, was starting to realize that this agenda for Rio Plus 20 wasn't going to move anything. And so a few people started to really get excited about this. And then after that meeting, we, I continued to ramp up this, this process. And there was a meeting in Indonesia in July on one of these agenda items, the formal agenda item of some institutional restructuring at the UN. And I, I went and I asked for permission to talk about, to present my initiative. And I got, per, I was allowed. And so I presented my proposal, but there was no discussion. I mean, I was given the floor. I explained what it was. I was like, thank you. And they moved on. But at least it was formally there. But at that point, there was a lot of confusion about what were global goals, because at the same time, the UN was proposing goals on energy, energy access, and, and um, especially um, um, something called sus uh, sustainable energy for all, which was about getting, for example, ensuring that everybody had energy access. So there was a goal on that. So people thought that's what we were talking about. But we, weren't, we were talking about that holistic, comprehensive framework that we had in our heads. But it was a first. Then we had, and at, by that point, there was a lot of movement and talk around, like a lot of people were in, in Indonesia would come up to me and say, what is this about? And government started to come to me and say, I'm really interested in this. We want to support you. So there was, we started to move towards, there was a wave. The momentum started to build up and we we're getting to a tipping point. Then in August, Brazil, which was the president of Rio Plus 20, they were the host country had a session in, in uh, a meeting in, in Rio to talk about the, uh, the Rio Plus 20. And I presented this document that I'd been sharing around and nobody started, everybody started to talk only about the SDGs. Like the SDG, not me, the SDG hijacked the whole agenda. Everybody was, because it was so concrete. It was something so interesting. But I realized that there was confusion. So that night I went back to my hotel, I rewrote it and Guatemala came up to me and said, the government of Guatemala wants to support this proposal. So the next day, I went very early with a USB stick, found a printer, and printed out a new version of the proposal, which is what is now known as the genesis of the SDGs, which was the Colombia-Guatemala proposal. It was a revamping of the original proposal, but to keep it more simple, to make it more straight, straightforward. And that, by then, there started to be huge momentum, then there was other meetings that I will go into civil society at a huge meeting of about 1,300 organizations in Germany, and they endorsed the SDGs. So everybody started to get really excited about this idea of the SDGs. And then the tipping point was really hit at the beginning of November because there was a secretary that organized the conference, and that secretary had set a deadline of the 1st of November to hear from all governments, civil society, everybody. What do you think? We should talk about in Rio Plus 20, what should be in the negotiations. And by then, the SDGs had gotten so much support and traction. So many governments and so many organizations told the Secretariat, we want the SDGs to be a part of the Rio Plus 20 negotiations, that they made it into what was called the zero draft, which was the basis of the negotiation. If that hadn't happened, the SDGs would not have been discussed at Rio Plus 20 hmm. as it was. That made it a formal part of the agenda, which means that 
in those first 11 months of 2011, we had come up with the idea and we had completely, in a way, subverted the UN process because without a formal process, we had gotten a completely new idea that a lot of people were completely against into the formal negotiation track. And during that time, during those very crazy 11 months, Preston, what I did get a lot was why Colombia? As in, you're a developing country. You realize that you are proposing a global agenda. And just think about that question, Preston. It's like, who are you? A developing country doesn't have the right to propose a global agenda. Like, who are you? Why Colombia? And people would say this meanly or would say this with real surprise. Like, but do you understand what you're doing? Thinking that maybe I was just too naive and I had sort of wandered into the adult hall without understanding what I was proposing. I was like, yeah, I know exactly what we're proposing. We all did. My whole government knew what we were proposing. We had very sophisticated technocrats in government, and we knew exactly what we were doing. But you asked me that question at the beginning, what it was like from Colombia. And I think that, that that was a takeaway, that it was surprising. But the good side of that is that probably if a big developed country had proposed this agenda, it wouldn't have flown because a lot of countries would have think, thought, well, that big country has a hidden agenda. They're, they're trying to do something, to get something. But Colombia, we really had no hidden agenda whatsoever. And so we were a very credible channel or conduit for an idea of this scale because Colombia was just a middling, middle-income country that wasn't seen as a threat to anybody. And so that also, I think, Although we got a lot of questions, it helped us to position this very revolutionary idea. Mm. And so that, that was the process to get it in. And then after that, it was the negotiations, which were, God, they were really hard. And um, I can talk about that too, if you want. But I've been talking for a long time, so I'm sure you have other questions. <laughs> well, it's funny because that was the next question I was going to ask about negotiations. And I mean, obviously, just to even get it to that point in Rio plus 20, just to even have that on the agenda is a huge accomplishment. But then to take that in 2012 and then go through the ne negotiations and then eventually actually launch the SDGs. This is a huge success story in 2016. Um, I mean, it's it, it's remarkable to think about. I mean, you, you got some cookies here. You, you've got your papers. You're just educating people on your idea. It comes to the table at Rio Plus 20, and then it becomes a real thing. Hard to wrap your head around, but but you did it, and um, I'm happy you did it. The world is happy you did it. And even I'll even say this. A lot of people will say, oh, the SCGs are, are for governments. It's for you know countries. But it's, it's for businesses. I mean, I work at a, a Fortune 500 company, and you know I was reviewing our ESG report a couple months ago. And in our ESG report, we are aligned with four of the goals from the SDGs. And I was even talking to um, someone the other day, and they were actually asking me about the podcast. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm having this really interesting conversation th this upcoming week um, on the sustainable development goals. And they're like, oh, what are, the, what are the sustainable development goals? And I was like, well, have you heard of, I was just trying to like make it relevant. I was like, have you heard of the Paris Agreement? And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, we've heard of this. And I was like, okay, well, the SDGs are this, um, these, these goals for sustainable development. And um, I was like, you know, you work for PwC. I said, let's pull up PwC and see if they have SDGs that they're aligned with. Sure enough, we pull it up, bam, they're aligned with it. And I'm like, this is now? And it's everybody's doing this, everybody. So, so that's a little sidetrack. But 
I, I do want to get into the negotiations because I can imagine that negotiating is a lot different than it just being a part of an, a part of Rio Plus 20 agenda. The negotiations are going to be far more complex. Could you walk through um, those negotiations and, and kind of how that, that all happened um, between, I, I guess, 2012 to 2016? Well, yeah, look, um, one of the things that, that just to speak to the example you just gave or, or the exchange with, with your colleague that you mentioned, I just want to say, because this, this to me is the highlight of the SDGs, is that they've created a common language. There's, it's a common grammar. So no matter what walk of life, whether you're the mayor of a small town or the CEO of a big corporation, everybody's working with the SDGs. And so the, it's, it's a common agenda. And otherwise, development is so complicated that there would be no alignment and no way of saying, even if you're doing things that are aiming towards the same solution or addressing the same problem, you have no idea because everybody's talking about it differently. The SDGs enable us as a global community with everybody, private sector, scientists, civil society, national and subnational and local government. I mean, anybody you can think of, we all have a common language to talk about the complexities about development, to figure out within this whole arena of areas that need to be tackled or that are relevant to me, this is what I do. But this is because I'm part of something bigger because a company can say, okay, I work on these four. But many companies say I'm working directly on these four and indirectly I'm contributing to all of these others. So we now have, just as English has enabled us in many ways, it's become sort of a lingua franca globally and it helps us to communicate, to use the internet, et cetera, because so much, so many people know English. The SDGs are sort of the equivalent of that. But for the complexity of not just the human of, of the human experience in terms of development, so I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that story. Yes, I love that. It's awesome. I love it. So you're asking about the negotiations. So look, negotiations are really complicated, um, and, and these are governments. This is 193 governments. Think of it: the U.S., tiny little island states that have maybe a population of 200,000 or less. Um, countries that are landlocked, countries that have big coasts, countries that have very different cultures or economic development. So everybody has to come to agreement on something. So it's pretty daunting. So the way the UN is organized is that there's these negotiation blocks. And I'll mention the two that are the most important. One is the European Union, because they negotiate for 27 governments. So they have their own little negotiations and they choose one person and that person will go into the negotiations and negotiate on behalf of those 27 countries. That's how. Then you have the more complex one, which is called the Group of 77 and China, known as the G77. That's 134, well, now 135 countries of the developing world. But it has everything. I mean, it has, um, I don't know, um, Egypt is a part of it, but so is Singapore and so is Colombia, but um, so is, is Brazil. I mean, it's, it's huge. Think of all the diversity. So there's a G77. And then there's some countries that negotiate outside of blocks like Norway or Sweden or the U.S. that do not, in these negotiations, belong to any bloc. So 
that means that there's many levels of negotiation because you have to, if you're going to de designate one person in the G77, who's going to talk on behalf of 134 countries at that point, well, you better have pre-negotiations within the G77 to agree on what that position is. And then that person goes and negotiates with the EU, the US, and everybody else. So just wrap your head around how complicated yeah. that is. So here's the problem. When we made this proposal, most of the G77, most of the developing countries of the world were adamantly against the SDGs. Adamantly against the SDGs. It was like trying to put a cat in water. It was not going to happen because they saw it that Colombia was not understanding what we were doing and that we were going to create all these conditionalities for them, that we were, um, that we were traitors, that we were betrayals, and that we didn't care about poverty. I mean, everything about the SDGs was anathema to the G77. And hey, before I needed to convince the G77 representative that it was a good idea so that when this person went and negotiated, they would negotiate for the SDGs. But he had to deal with the whole of the body and everybody hated it. So how far can you go? Not very. So the the most complicated part was to actually keep the SDGs in the negotiation draft because what the G77 tried to do at the beginning was to almost eradicate the idea of the SDGs and just build out the MDGs. It was all about the MDGs and only if and when the MDGs were met, da, 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 then you could bring in the SDGs. It was awful. And the person who was selected, this is one of those really great stories of these negotiations was selected to negotiate for the whole group, the SDGs, was a diplomat from Pakistan called Farooq Khan. And Farooq thought this was a really stupid idea. He was like, we have the MDGs, why are we reinventing the wheel? The beautiful story is that Farooq eventually, and pretty soon, understood the brilliance behind the SDGs, the necessity of the SDGs, and he became the number one champion. So I'm called the mother of the SDGs. Baruch is the father of the SDGs. But he had to operate very carefully because he was representing a group of 30, 134 countries about which about 125 thought this was the most awful idea in the history of humanity. So how to negotiate that? So it was very, very complicated. Um, I, I, you know, I, the book has, that I wrote has all of the negotiation documents and it, it explains everything in great detail. It's very complicated and, you know, I don't want to, to bore everybody with a lot of technicalities. Let us just say that it was really complicated. It was very difficult. And one of the things that I did was that I would hold these global consultations with support from key partners like Norway and Netherlands that helped to finance them. And one of the most memorable was in January, just before the start of the formal negotiations in the biggest state outside of New York, where I took 80 people, 80 representatives, and I sat them around one table. You almost needed binoculars to see the other end of the table. I had everybody there. The, U the UN Secretary General had sent representatives. UN Agency had sent representatives. I had the big economies on the table. I had small. I had those who were totally against, who, those who were lukewarms. Everybody. Because what I said is, if people are against this idea, I need them to understand why they are against the idea. And not have a knee-jerk reaction and to say, ah, oh, they're terrible because we have to do the MTGs. I wanted to help them think through and to hone their arguments against me. Because if they really were able to clarify what they hated about the SDGs, 
then we could have a rational, good conversation. So, and, and it was very important that everybody understood that Colombia didn't have a hidden agenda. And the progressive papers that I prepared would build, I was listening all the time. I was like a control tower, just listening, listening, and bringing that in and trying to understand what, what the concerns were and getting people to talk about what their concerns and to tell me even more clearly why they hated the SDGs because then we could have a conversation about it. So part of what that whole process of the next months was, was an education and an invitation to get people to understand and to think. By the end of June, after a really infernal negotiation, the document we started out with was 19 pages. At one point, I think we had 400 pages of document. And when um, things are being negotiated and you propose something and there's no agreement, the text goes in brackets. So you had entire pages of bracket within bracket within bracket of more brackets. And then you would have like, in one paragraph, 27 versions of what that paragraph could look like, all of the versions in brackets. And then there were different ideas about how to structure the segments. And the SDGs was a tiny part with seven paragraphs of the original document, which had like, 200 paragraphs or something. So it was chaos. And there was never enough time to negotiate the SDGs because there were all these other tracks that people thought were more important that were being negotiated. So it was a very, very difficult, but we were able to build up enough support to get agreement on the concept. And the most important part is what I'm going to tell you now, which was another big lesson that I'd like to share with your viewers and the people who are hearing is that if you want to be disruptive, if you want to transform, you have to create the right space for that transformation. So I knew that if we just got an agreement on something called the SDGs, then we were going to spend the next four years fighting over what that meant, which is what had happened with this idea of the green economy that nobody could agree to. And I knew that the SDGs were a metric. A metric means that they have indicators of, you know, we will do this by when, and these are the targets, and this is what we will deliver. That is what, and then you have to measure them. And if you're going to measure, it costs money. So you need statisticians. A metric, indicators, targets are actually very technical and need to be very technical. And if you're serious about them, then you have to measure and monitor them. And again, I repeat, that costs money, and they help governments or companies decide where to invest or what kind of policies are needed or kind of regulations. You know, metrics matter. What you measure matters. So this couldn't be a political negotiation where we ended up with a declaration, which is what the UN is good at. You know, the MDGs, and here's the story, were not negotiated. The MDGs were created in an office at the UN by a bunch of technocrats. And they did a very nice job, but there was no ownership. And what we, we were doing now, and I didn't mention at the beginning, which was like the fourth or fifth reason why the SDGs were so revolutionary, it was a bottom-up process. Think of what I told you about that informal diplomacy that I did for that first year. It wasn't formal diplomacy. It was informal. I acted like an NGO. I ran around with a piece of paper convincing people, right? And so when you look at the actual negotiations, we were trying to get this political body to agree to something very technical. And that wasn't going to happen. So the big win in Rio Plus 20 was not just the concept of the SDGs, but the creation of a technical working group 
And I can hear a lot of people going, ah, this is boring. I'm going to turn this off. This is not an interesting conversation. It's a fascinating conversation. And let me tell you, Preston, and, and the viewers, why this was so important and why it was so dramatic. Because we knew that in order to negotiate something that was really technical, that it's the reason that you're telling me Pricewaterhouse uses them is because it's the real technical targets. There's things that companies and governments can hold themselves against. So I said, we need to create a technical working group that's not a political negotiation and that doesn't include these big negotiation bodies like the G77 or the European Union, because that's a political function. You need to actually bring in the experts on health or on transport or on infrastructure into the room to say, this is what a target on infrastructure or agriculture can look like. And this is something that we can sign up to and that makes sense to the experts and to the sector. And you don't do that with New York diplomats. So we started to advocate to create a technical working group where a small group of countries would negotiate a formal technical something that looked and smelled like a metric. And that's why we have the SDGs, that for all their imperfections and, and for all of their whatever criticisms are leveled at them, they look and smell like a metric. They're targets that make sense to governments, to private sector. You can use them. And the reason is because we created the open working group. But that, Preston, those were the bloodiest battles in the whole process. Why? Because remember, we've said that the UN is structured around these negotiation bodies, right? Well, what I was proposing was a body that had individual states sitting on them. No G77, no European Union. So I was trying to get delegates who took all their power from the fact that they were sitting in the G77 or in the European Union to commit Harakiri to kill off their participation in a very important negotiation. And to not have a voice in the room and to have just individual countries negotiating. So most of the G77 countries freaked out because the power that the G77 has is because they represent 134 countries. So if the G77 says something, you better listen to them. If it's Colombia or Barbados or Burkina Faso, well, you just don't have the same cloud, right? Your individual countries. So the G77 was like, over our collective body, would we ever agree to this? The EU, the delegates would come to me, you know, with big eyes and say, Paula, you realize you're trying to exclude us from the negotiations. And I said, yes. <laughs> so it was against all logic of the established UN process. And this is why this was also revolutionary to create a technical working group. And we did it. It was called the Open Working Group. There's a lot of details in the book. But the biggest fights in, in the whole process were over the creation of this working group. And this working group is the reason that you have the SDGs. Now, when we finished the negotiations in Rio, it took there were 30 spots on that open working group. It took the members of the UN seven months to agree who would sit in those 30 seats. Seven months to figure out who sits there. Imagine if we had left Rio without even agreement on a body. It would have taken us 10 years to agree to create something to negotiate the SDG. That's why I'm saying that the open working group was revolutionary. So the message to everybody is, if you want to create a revolution, it's not just an idea. You have to create the enabling environment to make it prosper. That working group 
was established. It met until from 2013, 2014. And that's where what we have come to know as the SDGs were actually negotiated. Because at Rio, we only had the idea and, and this open working group. But then it was negotiated over the next two years, more or less. And the great thing about the open working group, it was led by the ambassadors of Kenya and of Hungary, and they did a brilliant job because they went through a year of education. So they would bring in the world, top world experts or world, world leaders like Paul Pullman, who was the Unilever of the CEO Unilever, or the top academics or experts in trade or in energy or in infrastructure or in agriculture and educate people about what was needed. And governments that were sitting in those seats realized that you couldn't, they, they couldn't just have diplomats. So they started to bring their experts from capital because those are the experts that were going to have to implement this. So it changed the dynamic. It stopped being a political declaration or a political negotiation and became this incredibly deep understanding of what the issues were and what was the highest aspiration or the best targets. And the UN did a brilliant job. The secretariat created a task force that also resourced and provided a lot of background documents and papers to help countries and, and delegates wrap their heads around what are the issues and what were some of the targets on water or agriculture or gender or intellectual property. I mean, the whole of it. And that's why when I tell you this, look, you can't see it, but I'm getting goose pimples just remembering that. That's why we ended up with those 17 targets, now um, goals. Now, some people will tell you, Preston, oh my God, that's nuts. 17 goals, 169 um, targets. But think about the complexity of development. Is it really too much? Nobody's saying you have to do all of them. Some will be more relevant for some than for others. But I think it's a pretty amazing thing that we were able to come up with something really powerful and succinct and targeted that has become that universal language for the world to tackle all of the issues that we need to tackle. Hmm. Yeah, I'd say I'd say for those, I guess you, you call them maybe naysayers that say, oh, 17 goals, like why do we need all this? Well, to your point earlier, I mean, we talk about a, a holistic, in, in sustainability, we use the word holistic a lot. And this is exactly what the SDGs are. They're, they're a holistic framework around a lot of different areas in development. I'd, I'd say in development in general. And that's why you can have, let's say, the government of Atlanta aligning with certain SDGs, my manufacturing company aligning with certain SDGs, a company like PwC aligning with certain SDGs. You have all these different actors coming together, aligning to, like you're saying, something that can be easily understood and easily um, tracked. But, but Paula, um, I just want to say um, thank you so much for, for breaking all this down. I, I have your book. I, I've, I've read your book. And, and I'd like everybody that, that listens to this podcast, watch this podcast, to get a copy of this book because, I mean, what you heard is is an excellent um, overview of, of what of what Paula and the Colombian government did, but this book really details you know how this happened. Very technical, um, and this book is called "Redefining Development: The Extraordinary Genesis of the Sustainable Development Goals." I got it off of Amazon, um, so Amazon's a great tool anyone can use. Um, but but Paula, thank you so much again for for coming on and breaking this stuff down. Um, I, I really really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Preston. What I would like to just close in saying that 
the reason that I wrote the book with with Patti, my my colleague, is because we want people to understand how revolutionary and how difficult it was to get the SDGs. Because if you think it was just, oh, it's just something that evolved, then you think that the way to implement the SDGs is, you know, business as usual, we'll just sort of amble on down the same old usual pathways and somehow things will happen. And it didn't. If you take stock of how hard all the Think of all the sort of mini revolutions I've talked about in, in this hour with you. All the, all, the, all the disruptions that it took to get the SDGs to happen. The overarching, overriding message for the multiple crises, the situation that we're all in collectively as humanity at this point in time, is that the only way that we can tackle all of these interlocked crises is by being equally disruptive and transformative. The SDGs are an invitation to transformation. The SDGs, if we're going to implement them as they were envisaged with the ambition and that holistic vision, we cannot keep just doing business as usual. And we have to pull together governments and private sector and civil society and scientists. We have to pull together. COVID showed us what disruption looked like. And there's a saying, you know, never waste a good crisis. Well, we wasted that crisis. We were supposedly going to do all of these things, and they didn't happen because we went back to business as usual. But at the same time, COVID still lives with us today. People are working from home, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many ways in which COVID transformed the world. And so it also speaks to the resilience that we have as humans. So the invitation when we think now about are we implementing the SDGs, are we on track, are we not, is how can we really think of ways to implement the SDGs in that really holistic way that grows the economic, the social, and the natural capital in an integrated way? And that we think about the level of disruption or transformation that our economies and societies are capable of, and that that is alone what is going to help us overcome these crises that we have. Because whether it's biodiversity loss or equity or migrant flows or climate change or AI, all of this requires a collective understanding, collective action. And that's what the SDGs are about. They're a call to action. I close with how I close the book, a quotation from Nelson Mandela that I love. And he says, he said, it's impossible until it happens. So my invitation to you, Preston, and to all of the people who follow you is let's make it happen. 